Listeners assemble, it's Geek Top 5! Yay! The toppiest, fivest podcast you've ever heard. I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And we're here to talk to you about the top five things that we really need to talk about over the last couple of weeks. So much to say. And so much to do. Coming in at number five is Viv. What is Viv, you ask? I was. I was asking that. We recently heard about Viv as it's going to be released to the public in just a couple of days. I'm on the Monday after this podcast comes out. Um, This is a semi-artificial intelligence project from the same guys who brought you Siri. Um, These guys, Adam Chayer and Dag Kitlaus, yet another example of the fact that everybody on the planet has a cooler name than me, (laughs) um, were the original team who developed Siri, the iconic sort of voice assistant that's now built into Apple products all across the board. Um, They are coming out with a new one, what they say is going to be a much better one. Essentially what they're describing is... They're trying to create a digital assistant in the place of just you know, a clever chatbot. Right. And you know, the example they use, I mean, I'm sure we've all done this. You know when you ask Siri a question, and essentially all she does is put it into a search engine and spits it back to you. Yeah. Doesn't seem terribly helpful. And it's like, you can't, it's hard to do follow-up questions. There's just, it's, Siri, it's not quite what I anticipated when, when I first heard about it. It definitely wasn't what was marketed. Um, I remember being told that, you know, I could ask Siri basically to balance my checkbook. When I got home, it was going to be done. Yeah. Not the case. Apparently, that was always their plan, but it didn't fly. They w- worked on this with Steve Jobs. He bought the thing. It got released an Apple product. These guys and, like, a third of the original team who developed Siri left to found their own company. And for the last four years, they've been working on this new semi-artificial intelligence that's going to come out. And it's supposed to blow your mind. Now, this is, a, this is a really fancy emerging market, because you're seeing a lot of these. You know, you've got the Siri on the Apple products, you've got Cortana on the Windows phone, you've got Alexa for the people who bought that Amazon thing that I don't really understand why you need one. It's coming out all over the place, so the race to develop the best one of these, like, like that's supposed to be like, this is Star Trek technology. This is yeah. where I can talk to Majel Barrett and just say, computer, mid-21st century clothing. Right. And then I just appear somewhere wearing that clothing. Yeah. It's supposed to be perfect. And and based on what we've read about the the interactions they've had, that's what came to mind. It sounded like, you know, it's not going to be something you can have a conversation with. It's not something that is going to be telling you jokes or, or whatever, but it's smart enough to know what you mean when you, you ask for something. Right. And it can, I think, ask for clarification if it needs it. Mm-hmm. The example they listed in the article that they did with the Washington Post was they said, order me a pizza from this place near my house. And Viv responded, what toppings do you want? If you said order me a pizza to Siri, she'll list you like you know the nearest pizza places in your vicinity, but that's it. Yeah. It's not terribly helpful. They're essentially trying to you know digitalize an administrative assistant, and if it actually works, it's going to be phenomenal. Um, like, like like I mentioned earlier, it's going to be debuted on Monday, so we're going to get the public you know opinion in and see what they can do. We're going to try as hard as possible to break it. Yeah. But I know this this is the kind of science that really excites me. Because I'm selfish and lazy. <laughs> and and because you're a Trekkie. And because I'm a Trekkie. But yeah, I want to be able to say, you know, computer, spaghetti, and meatballs. And have spaghetti and meatballs. Now, obviously, this is not a replicator. Right. But if Viv can say, all right, I'm going to go to the, you know, the Italian place downstairs and order you up some spaghetti and meatballs, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's great. And that's what Siri was always supposed to be. And I feel like that's still how they pitch it yeah definitely i'm a late adopter for a lot of this stuff it took me a while to get an iphone that could 
you know, handle Siri. And when I finally got it, I was like, this is what all the hubbub was about? I, I don't I don't get it. It's not what, what I was expecting. I agree. Like, 90% of my Siri usage is just dictating text messages, which is kind of insane when you think about it. <laughs> but, you know, just to save yourself the thumb space. But anything else I would normally need her to do. Like, I, you know, Siri, buy me movie tickets. Yeah, it doesn't work. Right. That's, I mean, I can barely get her. Like, every once in a while, I can get the showtimes, and she's smart enough to figure that out. Or it, technically, not she. But that's, like, the max of the capabilities. It is not what I was promised. This is, like, the, the, the jetpack syndrome. Yeah. It's the future, damn it. Why doesn't this work? Yeah. These guys are saying maybe they've got it. And if it, if it is the case, it's about, you know, 300 years early for the 24th century computers of uh, Star Trek. True. Yeah, we do see the one in the original series is pretty much just sort of a call. Actually, that one, except for the voice, is a lot like Siri. Yeah. And, and the horrible grinding noise yeah. under it yeah. while it brought. <laughs> while it's running all the, you know, the space tape through right. <laughs> Fun times. Uh, we're going to get a look at it to see what it is. It, from what they're promising, it sounds like this is going to be the next big step. That's really going to separate it from all the others out there. And I just how they're going to incorporate that and how we can build it into our lives is really exciting on the off chance it actually works like they promise. Yeah. But we're going to have to wait and see on that. Coming in at number four, I'm um, still talking about fun stuff in science, we get to turn to Tesla. The, everybody, the, the electric car company founded by Elon Musk, who is the, the richer, smarter, insane, crazy geek. He's, he's basically Tony, the closest thing we'll ever get to Tony Stark in real life. That's actually a really good description. <laughs> this one definitely plays off his sense of humor. Um, folks who already have Teslas have already seen this. I think the last example was when he introduced the ludicrous mode for his Teslas, uh, which was to boost the engine. Like, this is for, like, it boosted up so it could go from 0 to 60 in 2.8 seconds. And they're saying it actually feels faster than falling, like which is wild. Yeah. But because it's Elon Musk, he didn't call it high efficiency engine or anything like that. He's he called that ludicrous mode. He's now released another fun one, fun name, weird concept. The new Teslas, the Model S, the the car, and the Model X, the SUV, come with something that Tesla is calling bioweapon defense mode. Right, which is a, a bit grandiose. A bit grandiose and a bit grim, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> a little macabre. Um, what this actually is, it's a HEPA filter. Um, the, I think it's high-efficiency particulate arrest, arrester, something along those lines. Uh, it's essentially meant to filter out air pollution. Like The sarcastic way to interpret this is that this is Beijing mode. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're driving somewhere where the air pollution has gotten so bad that maybe you don't want to breathe it, this mode in the Tesla will actually sort of air seal the car and filter the air so that it's breathable and wonderful and, you know, won't kill you. And just, the, the pitch is that those filters are so good it could filter out bioweapons. Right, which couldn't possibly work for so many reasons. <laughs> because with the exception of, I guess, bacterial stuff like anthrax, like a lot of bioweapons are probably viruses, mm. which are too small to be filtered. And also, you would have to have it on... Like, before you came into contact, like, usually, well, usually, like, I'm such an expert in bioweapons, <laughs> uh, you know, the experience of a bioweapon attack would be noticing a bunch of people are sick, at which right. point it's probably too late to turn the filter on. <laughs> it's definitely, I, I, is it just flat out lying as saying that it can filter out bioweapons? I mean, it's, it's definitely not a fact. Well, I mean, maybe if 
Well, I don't know. I guess certain bioweapons it could filter out, you know? If, if, if Maybe he's not pitching it as all bioweapons, but, you know, specific bioweapons. Or you need to read the fine print. Some bioweapons yeah. need not apply. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a bioweapon filter, not the bioweapon yeah. filter. So it sounds like an interesting feature to add to the car, and it's a sad commentary on the times we live in that this is something we have to be concerned about. But it's also, it would appeal to the, you know, the people who buy... Teslas are concerned about the environment and probably have concerns about pollution levels, so having a really good HEPA filter as part of the car is a good selling feature. It's a smart idea. It definitely doesn't hurt. Like, you know, it's not like that's a, that could ever be a bad thing. Yeah. Um, what really overdoes it is instead of calling it a filter, they're calling it bioweapon defense mode, and I feel like that can only appeal to the... F- relatively small niche group of people who are buying Teslas right now. Like, I can't picture my mom buying a car that has bioweapon defense mode built into it. Certainly not pressing the button. (laughs) It, It seems like... Maybe this is what happens when you have a Tony Stark figure who has way too much money yeah. and no one to sit him down and go, listen, can we just call it, like, clean air mode? But the thing is, if he didn't call it that, we would not be talking about it. It's true. Nobody would care. It mm-hmm. would, what would it matter? So maybe it's just to get out there and highlight how cool the feature is. Yeah. Um, let's be honest. When you're talking about cool features on a Tesla, the fact that it's an all-electric car, I think, is still really the big selling point. Yes. Uh, that's starting to go places. Like I think I was reading it was Japan, I think, now has more charging stations than gas stations. That's awesome. Which, yeah, I mean, granted, given the limited you know, amount of land available in Japan, it doesn't seem like it's such a huge goal. But still, the fact remains that like if we can get off fossil fuels, yeah. maybe these bioweapon defense modes wouldn't really need to be necessary. <laughs> I mean, like, what I'm getting at is I love the direction that this is going. I even love the fact that it sounds silly, but I'm a grown-up enough to understand how that could maybe negatively affect your product, and I would never do that. Right. And I can't feel... Like, is, it, is it just that he... You know, he, he People can't tell him no, or does he just not care? He's, I mean, for God's sake, the guy's starting his own space program. Yeah, I, I think he can do whatever he wants. You know, he's going to do, he's going to make whatever cars he wants, make whatever features he wants, and so long as it still makes him money, he's going to keep doing it. Man, if I was in that position, I, I don't know what I would build, whatever it was, I would say it ran on tachyons. Yeah. <laughs> that would just absolutely be... See, I don't know if that would be a good selling feature, but if you had enough money, you yeah. could do it. Is this, is this just a certain point, I guess, where if you have enough money, you can get away with being crazy? Yeah. It's something we can all aspire to. <laughs> Beautiful. Coming in at number three, news that a TV show is being pitched based around the Wheel of Time fantasy series... It sounds like it, it may even be beyond the pitch stage. Like the, the lady who's in control of the rights has said that a major studio is involved, and, and uh, it sounds like it's, it's got some, some grease on those wheels. It Leave sounds it like there's some momentum, and this is interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is that the volume of work that is The Wheel of Time. Now, this is a fantasy series that was written by Robert Jordan. Uh, it's a pen name for James Oliver Rigney Jr. He started it in 1990 and just wrapped it up a couple years ago. Well, he didn't wrap uh, it up. Well, right? he didn't wrap it up. That's part of the thing. Um, these books, they're pr- hmm, arguably one of the most popular like ongoing fantasy series that isn't Lord of the Rings, like that isn't Tolkien. Right. There's 14 books and a prequel novel... Each of them averages out to probably just a bit shy of a thousand pages long. Doesn't that make it 15 books? It depends. I'm not big on prequels. As a Star Wars fan and a (laughs) Tolkien fan, you know, I don't know if I count prequels in with the main body of the work. Um, The point being that 
Yeah, he wrote this um, with his his wife Harriet McDougal being the editor. And there's some, you know, having this, you know, someone who's really important to you and special in your life, maybe a little bit challenging to edit. Right. Because man, these books are long. So long. Okay, but people, a lot of people complain about the length of the Game of Thrones books. You are one of the the elite few who's read both series. Yeah, let's go with elite. Let's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, what we'll that's call that. How do they compare? Game of Thrones is a lot more is a lot more murder porn. Wheel of Time is a very high fantasy. It's a lot to do. It's a lot to do with how magic works in this world, and like the, the big history of fighting with you know with the forces of evil, and how you know the forces of good who are so small. And like it, it's really if you think about the start of Lord of the Rings like with the Fellowship, it sort of starts in the same place, and then he sort of intentionally subverts that the Gandalf character. Turns out we kind of question the, the character's motivations. You know, the Aragorn character, kind of a jackhole. The, the characters are the real selling point of this franchise, and they have 14,000 pages to right. grow. So so what I, I'm getting at here is yeah, both books, both series have really long books. Some people think that there's Game of Thrones I've read, and, and there's a, a definitely a feeling of padding in some of them, but it's constantly changing perspective. I found it hard to get bored for long in the Game of Thrones books because it was always switching to a new scene, a new thing. Uh, by the time I got the uh, Feast for Crows, I don't know, I started flipping through chapters pretty quick. But okay. anyway, but yes. So so in, in Wheel of Time, what's the, the feeling on the padding in that? Wheel of Time, I, it feels, it feels, there's a tournament when you're scheduling television shows called hammocking, where you have two good shows and you put a lousy show in the middle so that people will watch it. Right. I think his plot points are kind of hammocking. There are, there are books of the Wheel of Time where something amazing happens and then nothing happens for like 600 pages. And just when you're about to give up, something amazing happens again. Hmm. So it's not for everyone. Um, so what I'm getting at is the first reason why this is questionable is because it has sort of a mixed reaction. Like some people love it. A lot of people hate it. There's certainly a lot of material to bring to a television show, but so much of it is so slow. Right. It might be tough to do. It's got to the point where, like, and this is bringing it back to Game of Thrones, you know, how people worry that Martin isn't going to make it to the yeah. end of the series. That's what happened here. Robert Jordan passed away before he could finish the series. It wasn't sudden, so he was able to leave notes of what he wanted to happen. It was handed off to Brandon Sanderson, who, working with the editor, with his wife, with Harriet McDougal, wrapped it up. Did a very nice job, I think. But again, if you talk to hardcore Wheel of Time fans, there's a lot of fighting over who sure. was better. The point I'm making, the first way, the first reason why it's weird to make a TV show out of this is because it's nutso in terms of information. The second reason it's weird is because there's been a lot of weird fighting with the licensing for this. Right. Um, a company called Red Eagle Entertainment. I think, was the last ones who sort of put a claim on this. And about a year ago, in February in 2015, they released an ash can to essentially to hang on to the rights. So what this means is that it's kind of like, you know, how they keep making a Fantastic Four movie just to hang on to the license. Because, yeah. like, it says if they don't make the movie, the licenses revert. Yeah. This is what they did. They released this short 20-minute thing. It had Billy Zane in it somehow, but otherwise no production value. It was on at like 1 in the morning on the, what, the sci-fi yeah. channel? Yeah, and it wasn't even aired. It was a paid-for position, like the way you would right. air an infomercial. They released it just to hang on to the rights. And then like Harriet McDougal came out on the internet and said, 
that's weird because me and Universal Pictures have a deal about the Wheel of Time and we don't know who these people are hmm. and they don't have the rights to do any of this. So we're wow. going to look into it. Hmm. You know, putting it politely, I sort of expected <laughs> to find these people face down in the gutter. <laughs> Whatever happened, now she's come out and says, okay, everything's fine now, we're working on a TV show. But it's leaving a lot of people scratching their heads going, what the heck is going on behind and the how scenes? How did it get resolved? Like, you'd think there'd be big lawsuits if they actually didn't have the rights and just, just did it out of Yeah, it whatever. seems like a sort of thing that would have come out in public, but yeah. we have no idea. Um, either way, apparently it's under control, and man, you know, the ground is ripe for Game of Thrones-esque TV shows. If you can put, you know, like the, the MTV do their Shannara show. Yeah, like, uh, Stars is doing Outlander. Yeah, if you can put like swords and magic and dragons on TV right now, you're golden. So I can see what they're going for, but if they're going to be able to do it and how they're going to be able to do it, you have no idea. But man, that, the, the, the small group of people who are such huge Wheel of Time fans, it would be so exciting to see that world come to life. Yeah, It's sort of a nail-biter. Could be a, a, a tricky thing. Like, uh, you know, love it or hate it, but it'll be interesting to see how they pull it off. There's so many uh, TV stations on the air these days. They're all desperate for content, especially content that already has a fan base. So... It's it was it seemed only a matter of time before they got around to a wheel of time, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what they cut out too. Yeah, there certainly is a lot to cut and a lot of stuff that would be difficult to put on screen without going into a lot of detail about it, which happens with every adaptation from books to screen. You know, we're yeah. accustomed to that. You didn't see Tom Bombadil in the Lord of the Rings movies for a pretty good reason. That's <laughs> yeah. Let's be honest. But that's assuming, like, they've, like, whatever it is they've done to work out the rights for this works out. I feel like it's one of those things that we're just going to fade away and we're not going to hear about it again. I hope mm. not, but we'll have to wait and see. Coming in at number two, news about the new mutants. About the movie? Yeah. About so, so you know, Fox has had, they own the rights to the X-Men franchise, and they've been putting out all these these pretty good X-Men movies, Days of Future Past, and... First class, and and uh, now Apocalypse is coming out at the end of the month, and that looks great. And uh, they've also sort of been dropping the ball with the Fantastic Four franchise, which I we just discussed. Uh, they they just keep cranking them out, and none have yet really satisfied either a general audience or the Fantastic Four audience, or the basic requirements of you know storytelling in film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so the the Fox people are going more in depth with the X-Men franchise and trying to pull out all the the you know fun toys they've got. We already know there's an X-Force movie in the works which is sort of like the 90s heavily pouched badass team of mutants led by Cable and they they have, are more on the edge and uh so that's that's coming there's going to be more Deadpool and they announced a while ago that there'd be a new Mutants movie. Now, New Mutants was a comic book that started in the 80s. It was one of the first spin-offs of of the X-Men and it was like the X-Men had all graduated. They started off as a team of people being taught by Professor Xavier how to use their powers, but by the 80s, they pretty much didn't need a teacher anymore. They, they knew what they were doing. So the New Mutants were brought in to be a new place for teenagers to find the comic books, to get into the X-Men universe, and, and have characters they could identify with who were actually learning how to use their powers. A new round of teenagers with attitude? Well, and they... they well, yes, sure, let's go with that. <laughs> Uh, so, but they, they, so they're kind of an old group. That they, they, they had their run. A lot of the characters ended up graduating. Some of them went to the the X Force actually, and uh, some others went to X Factor. 
anyway. A lot of X teams. A lot of X teams. So when this was announced, I didn't think it would be, you know, a hardcore faithful book or movie to that version of the New Mutants. I thought it would just take the name New Mutants, take a bunch of young X-Men characters and throw them in a movie and just just use that name. Uh, one of the characters from the Deadpool movie, Negasonic Teenage Warhead, I figured she would be, you know, the star of the show since she was sort of the breakout character of Deadpool. But the director, the guy who's attached to direct the New Mutants movie, released a bunch of images on his uh, Instagram feed, and they seem to indicate that these are the characters who are going to be in the New Mutants movie, and they're all, almost the entire cast of that New Mutants comic book. Of the original run? The original run. That's dedication. Yeah. There are a few missing, but the, the... Big ones are there. They're uh, specifically Magic, who's Claus's younger sister, and uh, long story short, she has a big sword, she deals with demons, and she can teleport people. Uh, Wolfsbane, who's a young Irish uh, teenager, raised very Catholic, and she can turn, she's a werewolf. So there's a, this like big conflict in her, but she thinks she's a demon, she thinks she's evil, she's, uh, there's, there's a cool yeah. thing about her. <laughs> Touchy. Yeah. Uh, then there's Mirage, who is a Native American who can use her powers to make people see their greatest fears or their greatest desires. And, and you know, it's like a distraction. And thing. nothing in between? Uh, well, her powers, as with all these X-Men characters, changed and evolved over the years. Of I'm course. I'm sure there's more to it now. But one of the coolest things about her is she started off as kind of a shy character, you know, struggling with her identity and everything. And uh, there was a, a crossover with the Thor books, and she actually became a Valkyrie. So she's got ties to the to Asgard and the, the Thor stuff, although that will not be in the movies because of all of that licensing. licensing stuff. And then there's Cannonball, who's sort of... He and, and Mirage are, like, co-team leaders, but he's sort of the de facto leader. He's a southern hick, grew up in, like, a mining town, and his whole thing is that he can rock it off like a cannonball, and he's near invulnerable when he's in that state. He flies around and, and smashes through stuff. And that's kind of the power they gave Negasonic Teenage kind Warhead of. in the Deadpool movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. in that vein. And then there's Sunspot, another character who's had like a huge variance of powers. But in the beginning, he could he just is really strong. That's the, the simplest way I can put it. Uh, and he's powered by the sun, and he's this hot-headed uh, South American teenager who comes from this billionaire family. Uh, eventually, he and Cannonball became Avengers really recently, and uh, Sunspot actually leads this whole new team of Avengers, and he owns them, and he bought AIM, Advanced Idea Mechanics, a long-running team of villains. Anyway, that won't be in the movie either, but... Because of Iron Man 3. Because of Iron Man 3, but it's a cool thing. And then finally, the last one he teased was a character called Warlock, who's an alien. He's kind of like... He's all technology-based, and he he's, it was the early days of computers, and so that's what he's sort of based around. But he's a great fish-out-of-water character, and he's got a really good heart, and he became sort of the heart of the team. Everyone loves him, and uh, he'll be a cool addition, too. Uh, probably some sort of CG monstrosity, but he'll be a lot of fun. Now, if I remember a lot of this, like I mean, and you're saying like, very literally the point of it is that they're teenagers who are struggling with their identity and just, you know, struggling with all the young adult stuff yeah. that sort of come out. Like, do we have any indication, like, is this sort of going to be a teenage movie? Like, are we looking at, like, you know, Hunger Games, the X-Men? I, there's not a lot out there right now. I think Josh Boone, the director, is known for movies like that. So he's he's a good pick if that's what they're they're going for. And uh, 
I don't know. I think it'll be a good change of pace. Uh, all the X-Men movies we've had so far, they've all been pretty grown up, pretty adult. I guess First Class would be the exception, but even then, you've got uh, Xavier and Magneto leading the way as as adults getting these kids together, and that quickly fell away in the, the sequels to that. But at its heart, the X-Men was supposed to be about sort of young people who were different and didn't fit in the world trying to get together and... and learn their powers and learn about themselves and that's what i think this movie could be at its best so i'm excited i i sort of you know when i started collecting comic books it was all at garage sales and and dollar bins and i would just get whatever comics i i could i wasn't really getting any new stuff but this was something that caught my attention when i was a kid and it really it, even though it was you know 10 15 years old by the time i was reading it it really spoke to me and i i, I really i felt a kinship with those characters. To, so to see them in a movie is a huge deal. I would, I'm, I'm dying to see who they cast and, and what it ends up looking like. Yeah, it's always sort of been the advantage that they have. With the X-Men franchise in particular, I think, but also just Marvel versus DC. Like, nobody identifies with Superman, the invincible alien from another planet. Nobody identifies with Batman, the depressed super billionaire. Yeah, the you world's know? greatest detective. Yeah, like none of that... You know, it's fun to watch. Yeah. But the thing about the like, the X Men characters in particular is just that like they're like they're just people. Yeah. Struggling to deal with this stuff, and you know, the teenage years are the years where you're struggling the most. Definitely. And then, like, <laughs> Those DC characters, they're like something to aspire to potentially. Whereas the a lot of the Marvel ones are characters where you see yourself reflected in them, and that's kind of a, a, a neat bit of the the difference between the two companies what some people would say makes marvel better than dc uh, maybe, yeah, we'll see. I, I think they both have their advantages i'm i definitely comp to being more of a marvel fan but i respect dc i respect what it's accomplished in all their business very diplomatic of yeah you. that's me diplomatic <laughs> to my core so coming in at number one speaking of marvel Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> so Civil War is finally out in theaters. Technically called Captain America Civil War. Might as well have been called Avengers 3 Civil War. I saw it last night. Really good. Go see it. <laughs> and that's it for this week. <laughs> no, no, so Civil War is, I think, one of my favorite comic book arcs of all time. It's great. Yeah, um, just the idea of having a legitimate reason, a legitimate political difference between these two characters, like, well, these two sides of characters. It's, you know, superheroes fighting each other is not uncommon. Um, it's almost a Mortal Kombat-esque in a way, like, where you know, one super character will see another and, like, oh, you dropped that. No, I didn't. Let's fight. Yeah. I mean, we've already had uh, three superhero things, or two other superhero things this year that feature that. Batman vs. Superman, and the Daredevil TV season on uh, Netflix was basically Daredevil vs. Punisher. So it's, it's even within the, the movies and TV shows now, it's a pretty common trope. But Civil War did so much more. Civil War explored these characters and came up with legitimate reasons for them to disagree and escalates into this huge conflict where you never know who to root for. Yeah. And they decided to translate that into the screen and make it a Captain America movie, which is fair. Mm -hmm. In the comics, like, you know, Captain America and Iron Man are definitely at the center of yeah. that arc, and they're definitely at the center of Marvel's cinematic universe. Let's face it, they are by far the best of those characters up on that screen. Yeah. I like Thor. I think, you know, I, li I think he's funny. Hulk's great. Hulk's great. Um, Hawkeye is in also there. Yeah, and he is in the movies. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
but is about Cap and Iron Man. And these are two very different people with two very different ideas about their place in the world. And I think, like, even with the other Avengers movies, they've done a good job of building up to this. There's conflict between those two characters already. Yeah. And this one, it all blows up. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I, it, it was a great ride. And I, I, as soon as they announced it, I thought, there's no way they can properly translate the exactly what happened in, in the Civil War comics to the movie. And they don't. They don't do an exact translation, but the same basic conflict is there, where the government wants the superheroes to become more under their control, to register, to, to have their identities known by the, these government agencies, and so that they are controlled by the UN. Where they go and what they do is controlled by the UN. So there's accountability. Yeah. And that's, I totally buy that in a real world sense. But when you see, you know, Captain America's argument that if the UN decides they don't need to go to something that they do need to go to, or it takes them three days to decide, and by that time the threat is already over, it's, it's too late. When you see it's Captain America talking about it, it's hard not to be like, damn it, Cap, you're right. He's, he's, he's so stirring, you know, as you buy it. Chris Evans does such a good job as Captain America. You just are like, I wouldn't want this from anyone else. I wouldn't want accountability and, and controls. But it's Captain America, damn yeah. it. Yeah, Captain America has always sort of been the Optimus Prime of the Marvel Universe. Yeah. Like, he always does the right thing. Thing. Definitely. And you can trust him to do the right thing. But when you think about that in the real world, like just trusting someone to do the right thing, that's yeah. really scary. And it's, it sets a bad precedent. Yeah, because you, you've got to really trust that person. And I don't know about you, I don't know a lot of homegrown you know, America mom and apple pie guys from the 40s who <laughs> sort of carry that thing around. Yeah. It's, uh, man, I barely trust you, and we're sitting here doing this <laughs> podcast. So it just, they took that. It made it a really interesting argument to explore and you know, an obvious allegory for politics in the modern world. And then they covered it by having, you know, superheroes punch each other. Ah, oh, so many superheroes punching each other. And, you know, shooting at each other and bow and arrowing at each other and web-slinging at each other. Yeah! The return of Spider-Man to the Marvel Universe. Very exciting. Ah, oh, and he's great. It's it, My take has always been that the Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man... They got Peter Parker right, where he's this awkward guy, and he doesn't quite fit in, no one really likes him, and he's, you can buy that he would want to, but he always wants to do the right thing, and you buy that he's super smart, and that he can do all that Spider-Man stuff, but to me, Spider-Man's always been wisecracking, and, and, and acrobatic, and I don't think the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man quite had that. The Andrew Garfield, Amazing Spider-Man, they got Spider-Man down, he wisecracked, he was acrobatic he was he was always doing those crazy Todd McFarlane style poses but his Peter Parker was a jerky emo skater kid and that that's not any Peter Parker that I recognized uh, it, it wasn't even a Peter Parker I recognized in its own movie I, that always threw me off I really didn't like that character yeah but they've got Tom Holland this young British kid and he managed to to straddle both He's a great Peter Parker. He's he's not in the movie much, but you get that flavor of him, the taste of him, and he's he's a, a perfect Peter Parker, and he's a great Spider-Man, wisecracking, constantly talking throughout the fights, and it's it's 
a great balance, and I can't wait to see a full movie of him. Which is exactly what it was intended to do. Right. Is just to leave that flavor on your tongue and serve you the rest of the meal later in yeah. Spider-Man. Do we have a release date for Homecoming? Do we know when that's coming out? Uh, not off the top of my head, but they've got the title, they're casting. It's probably going to be 2017, I would guess. And Fantastic. We can keep letting the good times roll. Yeah. In any case, you're listening to Geek Top 5. We'll be right back with our guest segment, so stay tuned. Alright, welcome to the second half of Geek Top 5. This week, we've got a top five list coming from Mr. Dave Ansel. And what have you brought for us this week, Dave? This week, I've brought the top five inventions that were inspired by science fiction. So this is going to be pretty hardcore. This is <clears throat> real stuff. This isn't for any fake geeks out there. This is for the hardcore. <laughs> Alright, let's jump right into it. What's number five? Number five is the submarine, or more specifically, the electric submarine, from uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Okay, now, you clearly make that distinction. Is there a non-electric submarine that doesn't count? Yeah, interestingly, the first submarines ever were uh, human-propelled. Oh, I guess that sort of makes sense. Like a diving bell. Or yes. like an underwater bicycle? It was like an underwater bicycle. That is a real thing. Wow. Okay, well, I know what I'm doing after the podcast. <laughs> so, but. in 1870, this guy says, well, what if we just made them electric? And it didn't electrocute you. <laughs> Which is an important distinction. <laughs> yeah, I have trouble with that one. <laughs> uh, so, one of the reasons why I really like this and wanted to put this on the list is that... We don't really think of submarines. We don't think of uh, the water. We, whenever we think of science fiction these days, we tend to look up and at the sky and, and say, oh, what about aliens out there? Or what Space. About humans yeah. living yeah. on other planets <laughs> and that kind of science. And we don't really think. There was a point not that long ago where we had no idea what was in the ocean. We still don't know a lot about the ocean, right? Yeah. Yeah, but we've made, you know, a few steps yeah. since then. Like, yeah. but like... And the reason why we made those steps? Bam. Electric submarine. Bam. Jules Verne. So do yeah. you... Was Jules Verne, do you think he extrapolated on stuff that was already happening? Or did he, like, just come up with it on his own and inspire other people? <clears throat> there were already mechanically driven submarines at the time. Uh, actually, the first one was made only seven years earlier. Okay. But he he came up with the idea of using an electric motor instead of a uh, a compressed air motor. Okay. So that probably makes a big <clears throat> difference in terms of like, you know, now it's less of a toy and something you could live in. Right. Which is probably a big difference, which is a lot of what 20,000 Leagues is about, right? There's, you know, they have yeah, this it, whole life in this. Yes, it's about yeah. the adventure and and uh yeah, base, effectively living under the sea. That's that's Captain Nemo, right? Is that Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea? Yeah, that was Captain Nemo and the Nautilus. Right. Yeah. 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 The Nautilus. Okay. I was struggling for the name. Now today, it seems like the only like whenever I think submarine, I only think of like torpedoes and nuclear submarines. It seems mm-hmm. like there's not a lot of people who own their own private submarines. It seems weird to me that that didn't really catch on. I but... remember at least there's an old joke that the West Edmonton Mall had more submarines than the Canadian Navy. Navy, yes. Well, yeah, before we bought all those clunkers and hand-me-downs <laughs> right. from the English. <laughs> but, I mean, the submarines also seem like they're real Cold War things. In World War II, 
are they in much use these days? Do we know? Do uh, have they sort of lost their <clears throat> their value now that there's all these sonar things we can find? Well, them, see or? again, like this is like when I think a submarine. This is like right now, militarily speaking, like a submarine is a great mobile nuclear launch platform, right? Um, you know, I use the term great kind of loosely because that would actually be a really bad thing if that <laughs> had to be necessary. Um, but it's a good way to go wherever you need to and blow somebody up. Right. Which is a bit of a collar tugger. And, yeah. you know, again, ex- you know, exactly not what, you know, Captain Nemo used the Nautilus for. That and also uh, having something under the water is a lot harder to destroy. It gives you a lot less options. If you have something above the water, you can either destroy it with a another boat, or you could destroy it with a submarine, or you could actually have an airstrike. Right, and if it's a close sub- enough to a land, submarine yeah. needs either depth charges or just another submarine. Right, and like a submarine can move, uh, what's on the like a vertical axis? It can go up or down, whereas a boat yes. can just like turn. Yeah. And even with sonar, you know, you don't. It's it's hard to find sometimes. It's right. easy for a submarine. Mm-hmm. We all have seen the Hunt for Red October. Well, I hope I, we have. Anyway. Oh, such a good movie, <laughs> lousy book. A mm. good movie. Mm. It yeah. Is. All right. How about Crimson Tide? How does that rank? Yeah. It, you know, Crimson Skies had a submarine that had an airplane hangar in it. Oh, so cool. That was pretty cool. Was good. I don't think that really exists in real life. <laughs> but, but it should. But yeah. it should. And then Crimson Skies would get credit for it on the next list. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Speaking of, what's next? What's number four? Next is a mobile communication device, which we just call cell phones. Or smartphones. Or iPhones. Let's let's be honest. (laughs) Now we call them smartphones. Now we call Um, them our second brains. Our first brain. Yeah. But one of the original sources of a mobile communication device was Star Trek. The original series in 66 to 69. Beam me up, Scotty. Yes, had the flip communicator and... I had one of those growing up. I mean, not like a real... I mean, obviously it didn't. I couldn't call the Enterprise. (laughs) Yeah, and it was this communication device that actually inspired the making of the cell phone. Yeah, the idea of being able to reach out to someone from wherever you were. Yeah, wirelessly. I I am just old enough to remember when you couldn't do that. Yeah. And like, if you were walking down the street, you couldn't just talk to anyone or, you know, check your Facebooks. Right. Or like, I remember... Watching uh, True Romance, this uh, Tony Scott movie, and there's like a, a huge clunky car phone. You know, it's like that. Oh, the, the Zach Morris thing, yeah, 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 with the huge antenna and, <laughs> or car phones. My dad had a car phone. Yeah. Like, it wasn't really a cell phone; it just had a huge cable that plugged into the dash. Right. And, <laughs> no, that's really cool to me, especially because that transformation happened so fast. Everybody is always on their thing now. Yeah. Everywhere you go, you're just constantly looking down at their screen. Like, whether, I mean, whether, actually, I imagine they don't use it as a phone very often. Yeah, it's because it's made the jump from mobile phone to pocket computer. Right. Yeah, that happens to have a phone in it. (laughs) Okay, so Star Trek the original series inspired this. Star Trek The Next Generation, they switched to chest pins. Yeah, they switched to the chest pins, which I actually think is a lot cooler than the flip phone. <laughs> right. I want that. Yeah, but you forget, the people on Next Gen had really interesting conversations on their communicated pins. <laughs> You'll be walking down the street, and somebody's going to be talking into his breastbone, like, no, no, large pepperoni. <laughs> large pepperoni. Oh, my God, shut up. Like, you're opening a Pandora's box here that I don't think you're going to be able to close. 
I don't think holding a device to your head mitigates the damage much. <laughs> it's a start, man. It's still people yelling about pepperoni right. on the subway. Well, okay. Um, so but, then but, the next step after that was mm-hmm. in uh, DS9. They had these like hologram oh, transmitters. Okay. That didn't even stick around for long in Deep Space Nine. <laughs> and that was Star Trek. So... Uh, all right, but how far? Do, how long do we have to wait for those? I'm not sure. Well, we don't even have the Star Trek Next Generation pins yet. Uh, supposedly, MIT has come up with some sort of uh, prototype. Seriously, of that, but but why? You know, I, yeah. I, until they actually release it, I don't really care that it's soon to come. I, because soon is so relative of a term. Right. Like, I want lightsabers. And if they told me, we're really close in lightsaber development, I wouldn't care. I just, I, I want an actual lightsaber to swing around and right. hit people. 99% of a lightsaber is not yeah. a lightsaber. Close only counts. And, 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 and I'm not talking, you know, we kind of figured out the lightsaber, but we have to have crappy exhausts on the side lightsaber. I'm talking about a real functional lightsaber. Wait, is that a thing? Well, Kylo I, Ren's junk saber. Oh, yeah. okay, I see. And early lightsabers, I believe referred to as proto-sabers, did have this like little power cable that attached to it. Didn't <laughs> we establish in a previous episode that that doesn't count anymore? <laughs> anyway, moving on. Uh, no, I don't think we're going to see the hollow communications thing, because there's no point to it. I mean, next generation, they had video phones. We have video phones now, but nobody ever uses it, because yeah. it's stupid. Uh, the only time I use it is when my parents are away somewhere and they want to show me what their hotel room looks like (laughs) (laughs) it's like exotic locales beautiful landmarks (laughs) no the hotel room I'm just kidding I I love you Mr. and Mrs. B you guys you guys are great (laughs) alright what's up number three number three is nuclear power ooh okay because nuclear power is super rad uh, <laughs> okay, <get> yeah. it. <laughs> Took me a second. Okay. <laughs> but you got there in the end. Uh, so in... I had to wait for the joke to reach critical mass. Oh. <laughs> oh. Dave's melting down. But, oh, okay, now it's just a chain reaction. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we're, just taking, we're just splitting it down the middle. Uh. Are we done? Are we done anymore? Okay, but... H.G. Wells in The World Set Free referenced atomic power, which effectively was the same what we call nuclear power these days. And now nuclear power is absolutely insane. One power plant, one modern nuclear power plant can effectively create as much power as all of our coal plants combined. Right. Yeah, you don't really think about the scale of what's happening and the amount of power that's put out. All you really think of of nuclear power is like bombs and radiation. Yeah. Um, Especially being products of the 80s and 90s when everyone was terrified of that stuff. I mean, it can also, it can do that, uh, how many coal stations does it replace? Like, all of them. (laughs) Almost all of them, yeah. It can also make large swaths of land completely uninhabitable with one little accident. Uh, Okay, (laughs) that is is true, except that, I mean, okay, the Chernobyl disaster, it was built in a country, the Ukrainian SSR, because it was still the Soviet Union at the time, had a GDP of approximately 7% of Canada's GDP, and they're trying to build a nuclear power plant. At the time? At the time. Wow. In uh, 1987. Hmm. So, I mean... That's the year Star Trek The Next Generation premiered. (laughs) (laughs) It was a blast. Ah. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Okay. (laughs) No. 
Uh, yeah, no, so you, so you can assume they cut some corners. I mean, obviously there have been more yeah. modern nuclear disasters. Fukushima comes to mind. Yes, but the Fukushima was a nuclear reactor which was uh, based on designs from the 1960s. It was Man. not... It, it had its, its backup generators on ground level. So when a tsunami hits... They just get cleared away. Now, we should uh, say here that Dave is a representative of the nuclear power. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I know what he's getting at, though. Like, whenever you think of nuclear power, you think of the bad stuff. But the fact of the matter, like, I was reading all those comparisons. They're like, the amount of pollution that comes from coal power plants? Yeah. Way worse from what usually comes from a nuclear power plant. Like, you're actually making a huge impact moving off of coal to nuclear. Yeah. I mean, unless (laughs) something terrible happens. Right. And in that case, 95% of the nuclear accidents I've read about have resulted in people getting superpowers anyway. That's true. Right? So we should be hoping for more. Yes. Most have occurred in some kind of meltdown. Yeah. Yeah. Or the waste. Um, The toxic waste is a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Become an Avenger of some sort. Exactly. You know, if it could release gamma rays. Yeah. It's perfect. So we're we're all begging for for the nuclear reactors near us to blow. But but (laughs) we digress. But no, I really find that interesting that he wrote about that this is when is this early 19 1914 1914 okay so yeah we know enough about atoms to understand that if we split the atom we're probably going to get something cool to happen but that's still some serious pie in the sky stuff yeah it was yes yes it was um we, we actually we didn't really understand much about the atom at the time definitely even less about subatomic particles and uh, colliding them in a fission reaction. So do you know, I, I mean, have you read that the novel where he mentions it? Does it, how, how in-depth does his description go? Does he just throw out the word atomic power and leave it at that? And... Uh, you know, it, it's descriptive enough that you get the idea that he, okay. he knew what he was talking about. Uh, effectively, I mean, most science fiction writers tend to have a background in science. Right. The good ones. Yeah, yeah, that's why they're writing about it. So I'm sure that he had done some kind of research into the modern theories that were going around. Right. Uh, that tends to be what happens. Like with Star Trek, it was nothing but jargon about theories. Like they have, yeah. you know, they have a warp drive, which doesn't exist yet, and but that is an actual scientific theory. That it could seems, be possible. Yeah, it seems like the, the more you learn about the warp drive, the the more crazy it, it sounds like. The, right, but the science fiction tradition of like taking what we have now and extrapolating it to right. the next level. Yes, uh, it just it seems like it's so much easier to do nowadays. You know, now that we're so like we have our nuclear power and our lasers and all this stuff, seems right. like the sky's the limit. But trying to picture that in <clears throat> 1914, yeah. you know, around the same time they were coming up with flight. But it also it also seems like these days everything is advancing so quickly. It's like, you know, cloning was postulated in what the 60s and 30 years later we've got clones and it's like not even a pine or whatever. But again, it's from, like the, so from, from the from yeah. the 60s we've already got, you know, we're already working to get to the moon. In right. 1914, mm-hmm. like, you know, there are parts of, you know, what you would call first world countries that didn't have electricity. Right. And this guy was coming up like I remember reading science uh, fiction from that era like they used the word atomic motors. Mm-hmm. Were there spaceships? Like, that's really cool to me that somebody managed to, like, figured that out. That was a real thing. Yeah. It, uh, it's around the time that Albert Einstein was publishing the theory of relativity. Yeah. I, people were just starting to read it. I guess he was still a patents clerk at the time. Right. 
<laughs> so now is this before or after H.G. Wells chased Jack the Ripper into 1980s uh, San Francisco? <laughs> oh, I do remember that. With um, <laughs> the bad guy from Generations? Yeah. Malcolm uh, McDowell. Malcolm McDowell, yeah. And yeah. I've heard they're actually turning it into a TV series soon. Oh, my God. Yeah. Anyway. H.G. Wells did a lot of good, <laughs> is what we're getting at. <laughs> okay, okay. What's, what's number two? Number two is virtual avatars. A force for good, but also ruining people's lives. So what I mean when I say virtual avatars is uh, basically a video game representation of you. Right, okay, so essentially, yes. yeah, so like manifesting yourself through a digital, like, well, it's not even, I guess, like, digital creation? Yeah, manifesting yourself in uh, some version of the internet, some, like, digital format, right? Yes, playing a, a character mm-hmm. that you customize to represent something about yourself. Okay, and so, now you were, you were talking specifically, like, you know, I've customized Dungeons & Dragons characters that were basically me. You know, they reflected my real-life values. I'm seven feet tall, yeah. 200 pounds, mostly muscle. Yeah, green packs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but in this case, we're referring specifically to a digital creation? Yes, we're, we're referring to, uh, like, not pen and paper, but it's, it's more of a uh, uh, transferring ourselves or, or creating a digital world in which we exist. Right. Okay. So it's, I mean, not the way virtual reality is traditionally used, but literally a virtual reality, like a fake place we've created and manifesting ourselves in it. So even though you you don't have some sort of uh, haptic response suit, um, like from uh, Ready Player One by Ernest Cline, which is a fantastic novel. If you have not read it, you should read it. Fantastic Mm -hmm. novel. The audiobook is read by Will Wheaton. Ah, Will Wheaton. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so not necessarily something like that, but uh, just even something like The Sims, where you're creating a digital family, a digital life for yourself. There's act, there's Second Life, which is directly references in the title that it is meant to be a second life right. that you can live out in a virtual world. So what's the, the sci-fi origins for, for this one? So it's probably hard to track down. To track down the very, very first reference, but... Definitely one of the first was Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson in 1992. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just, you know, it's it's just creating that virtual. It's one of my friend's favorite novels. I had a hard time with it. I have a hard time with cyberpunk, but it's (laughs) a cool idea. Well, tell me about it. What's like? How does that manifest in Snow Crash? Please. Uh, okay, it was. Uh, it's a hacker guy, and uh, he's got to hack stuff, and so he's got like a ninja hacker guy. <laughs> I'm not you, helping. You did have a hard time <laughs> yeah, with it. Yeah. <laughs> but okay, so yeah. so there's a virtual world, and basically he's hacking into it. Okay, is, but, the, is the premise? But it's done in such a way that like he sort of creates a manifestation of himself inside what he's hacking. I mean, the reason I'm asking is because this sounds vaguely to me like the first Tron. Right. Um, you remember, like, even when it opens, Flynn, like, he's using the first clue. Yeah. Not, not the clue from the second movie, but that was a <laughs> reference. Uh, but he's using the first clue. It's essentially himself in program version. He's trying to hunt up the order of his records. That yeah. He created all those video games. Except in that, it's a bit more stylized. Like, Jeff Bridges doesn't really see the Jeff Bridges in the computer as Jeff Bridges. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, we see him typing commands yeah. but in the world inside the computer. Right. It's interpreted as this guy, like it's Jeff Bridges in a tank in a neon suit. Whereas in Snow Crash. There's it's a more literal representation of him. Okay, he's got like a sword, and it's it's like a, that the same sort of wish fulfillment aspect of of that we get with 
you know, what you were describing with the D&D character. Yeah, I mean, what what today is World of Warcraft? Yeah. And, I mean, just any of those MMO games yeah. that are really big right it's now. It's not necessarily an exact version of you, it's it's an idealized version of you. Yeah, and, and that's also acceptable, because you, you know that if people were to transfer their consciousness directly into a computer system... They would create the idealized version of themselves. Yeah. No, nobody's going to be, you know, overweight and, you know. <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking about. I, mean, <laughs> and, uh, I would probably tone myself down a little so everyone else wouldn't feel that. That's... <laughs> the other thing is, it, it as from a narrative point of view, it makes it a bit more interesting than just writing about someone typing commands into a computer. Yes. You know, it makes it a bit more lively to read about a guy with a sword fighting other guys with swords and have it actually have some sort of technological yeah. impact. Right, but that's not really what... I mean, what the science fiction side of it isn't so much... I mean, yes, obviously it helps if you're watching, you know, the Hackers movie. Yeah. That, you know, yes. they, had, they actually went into the code. <laughs> But in terms of the science fiction aspect, it's the concept of having these interactions that you consider to be happening to you. I mean, that's what distinguishes it from something like like playing a video game back in the day. If you're playing Mega Man, like, yeah, when we're kids, it's fun to pretend to be Mega Man, but you didn't really think of it as being you on the screen. Right. Something, like, even in World of Warcraft, like, I mean, it's kind of you, but it's the you who's a dwarf with a lightning hammer, like, but something like Second Life are those things where it's not even, you know, there's no real questing or anything it's just about this virtual space yeah there's there's no there's no real uh game involved necessarily the objectives are just effectively real life objectives like uh maybe let's start a family let's get a job let's and they're objectives that you set for yourself right it's not yes it's something you want to do they're self-driven Right. What I think of with this is I remember first hearing about stuff like this with EverQuest, where people would meet other people in EverQuest, and they would have these real friendships that were just based on their interactions in the game, and weddings would happen, and, and stuff like that. It's, it, that was the first place I can think of hearing yeah. about it in real life. Yeah, it, it can definitely uh, bleed into uh, real life, uh, and that happened all the time, especially when it was more based on message boards for communication right. uh, and discussing the games. We still do that now, but via the internet, there was less calling people on the phone over via the internet. Yeah. So Snow Crash so and things like Tron. Those... Posting messages and stuff like that. I remember with Ultima Online. Yeah, it would just appear over your head like in a crowd of people, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. I can see why the, you know, the video game industry evolved beyond that. That was a difficult system <laughs> to manage. <laughs> Okay, so should we go to number one? What's what's number one on the sci-fi technology real-life list? Number one is one of my favorite things of all time. Wow. Ice cream sandwiches. Oh, so good. I can't wait. No. Okay. No? It's actually artificial intelligence. Oh. Uh. I would still take ice cream sandwiches, I think. So this is not the first reference to artificial intelligence, but one of my favorite ones was 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm. Open the pod bay doors. Yes. So that was HAL. HAL 3000 or 9000? 9000. 9000. I was involved in in the earlier (laughs) development. So that was in 1968. And one of the very, very interesting and memorable scenes to me was him playing chess with the main character. And 
1996, IBM developed Deep Blue, right. the computer, which actually defeated world chess champion and grandmaster Gary Kasparov. Yeah, and then and we've gone even past that. Wasn't it Deep Blue that was also on Jeopardy recently? Yeah, that was Watson. Watson, I think. but uh, descendant of Deep but Blue. There's, well, the, yeah, all these things are spreading out. Like they just released the one that plays Go. Yes, so um, right. the, the Google yeah. AlphaGo. Yeah. In 2015, beat the European Go champion, and just now beat the World Go champion. Okay. So, so what's Go? Go is a tile laying game where. It's like Mahjong? You, you, ha- you have white tiles and you have black tiles. It's a two-person game, like chess. If uh, you read any fantasy, like in every fantasy <clears throat> franchise everywhere, if they're playing a game called Stones, okay, this is the game they're talking about? Uh, is it like Othello? Uh, yeah. Okay. Close. <laughs> yes. So it, it's about controlling regions, and based on how you place the stones, you control a certain amount of the board. The goal, in order to win, is to control the most portions of the board. Okay, yeah, but close it's, an area with so your yes. stones. Why do you think it's been so hard to get artificial intelligence to be good at it? Because uh, in chess, there are a certain number of moves. Go has a much larger board, and so the possibilities f- for each move are just a lot greater. Okay. It requires many more computations to understand which one would be the great, the best move? It would. It also requires a lot of um, intuition. Okay. To understand where you should go, where the other player is probably going to go. Um, the the Go champion uh, described a lot of the moves as um, either uh, irregular or sneaky. Hmm. The moves that the AI did. That the yeah. AI did. Okay. And see, this is like this is why playing chess used to be our metric for who was smart, because you had to keep all these possibilities in your head and still anticipate what possibilities the other guy was thinking of, and think ahead of him or her, essentially, which is a very difficult thing to do. You have to know the game, you have to know your opponent's. It's got that bluffing element, kind of poker, of okay. knowing what your opponent's doing, and this almost mathematical element to it of what makes the most sense to do. Right. Then Deep Blue solved the game, essentially. I think it was actually Bobby Fischer. It was either Kasparov or Bobby Fischer who said that he was sort of giving up on chess because the AI had come so far that the game wasn't really about that reading your opponent anymore. It was just about knowing mathematically what's the best move to make okay. at the best time. Isn't that what, kind of like what poker's like these days? It's all just become a game of odds? Yes, poker has always been a game of odds. Um, chess... To some degree, it's, it, it is about reading your opponent and trying to figure out what the next move is going to be, or okay. what the next five moves are going to be. But for the most part, it, it's there's no real chance involved in chess. Okay, You have deterministic governance over every move that you make. That's why it was a, a good measure of intelligence, was because... Every single move, you meant to do that move. Right. It's not just you, you drew a card, it wasn't a very good card. Yeah, or this is what I got on my die roll. Right. Yeah. So, getting back to AI, um, in earlier interpretations in sci-fi, I guess something like the Star Trek computer wouldn't count, because it basically didn't have any personality, it didn't have any thought, it just did what you told it to do. So that wouldn't count? Probably not. It's, my understanding is artificial intelligence is marked... Like, the way it is in sci-fi is that it thinks for itself, that it reasons, right? Yes. So, the 
Examples of Deep Blue and AlphaGo are not actually true AIs. One of the reasons why I love artificial intelligence and why it tops the list is because we have examples of a partial AI, but not a true AI yet. Mm. And so we're, we have part of it, but we're still developing to the next stage. Uh, like in the movie Ex Machina. Right, love that movie. Which so was good. yeah an amazing movie that came out earlier. And that one was a true AI, which learns and can uh, manipulate other people for, their, for its own gain. Hmm. Yeah, whereas even the smartest you know, AIs, quote-unquote, we have right now, yes. can really only function based on the instructions we've already given it. It can't right. determine <laughs> anything yeah. new. So a chess computer can only interpret actions in chess. And it, and it only works because it knows all of the moves available to it, g- given the rules, given the parameters of chess. It can't expand upon those parameters and create new parameters. Right, it can't flip the chessboard over when it's not doing well. <laughs> right, it's a, yeah, a joke I read once was that you know, yeah. chess has been solved and Go is just about solved, but computers still have a long way to go before they can solve seven minutes in heaven. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Because they can't adapt to new things, which is sort of the conceit. I mean, it's even exploited even when you do see AIs in science fiction. Mm -hmm. A popular example is the Skynet AI behind all the Terminators. Right. I mean, it makes the decision for itself to do all this, but it still tends to... Like, all the Terminators function like computers in a very logical way. Right. At least until Terminator's salvation. (laughs) So the point is that it can learn. It can learn beyond its original programming. And it can rewrite its own programming based on its environment or right. wh- whatever it is. And it, write new programming, yeah. too. It's right? essentially it, what we've determined is probably a good definition of consciousness. Of consciousness, yes. And so the AlphaGo program is the closest thing we've really had to that because what it actually did was they created a Go program, which then played a game against itself and then continued to play games against itself and tried to determine which moves were effective, which moves were not effective. Then it played games against, as they upgraded, it played games against different versions of itself to understand Hmm. which ones were working, which one weren't. It just continuously plays games against itself all day and learns the most effective moves or to move this way on this turn, but that sets up this other thing for this turn down the line and just progressively learns more about the game. So, I've been thinking about it. I can only really think of one instance in science fiction, off the top of my head anyway, where AI hasn't turned out to be, at best, a neutral creation, and (laughs) more often, like, a bad thing for humanity. The only thing I can think of is in in the uh, Ender's Game series of books by Orson Scott Card. There's a character called, called Jane, and she is an AI that, in the most traditional sense, it's, she's basically like, the book was written in the 80s, but it already had the internet in it, basically, and it, it became sort of a construct of the internet, and it could learn and think and access everything mm-hmm. and become super smart, and it's generally there to be helpful. Yes. Uh, but everything else, like the Borg or uh, the Terminators or the Matrix. It's all AI trying to subjugate humanity. That tends to be a general theme. So that doesn't concern you? I think it's uh, meant to be a serious warning about what could potentially happen. Okay. Uh, 
Can you guys think of any other examples it's, of like well, the, good I would, AI? I would argue that the Geth from Mass Effect, um, they start off as antagonists, but then they actually do, you delve into the story, into the characters, and it explains their motivations and what they're seeing and how they work. It's a really fun explanation right. for how AI works, by the way. Uh, too detailed to get into here, but you should play Mass Effect. Yeah. Um, but and there's a, and in the end, one of the endings is a peaceful resolution between the conflict of this artificial intelligence and its creator. Um, essentially, like any other war, I mean, it, what happened was born out of fear and misunderstanding. Hmm. I think one of the major issues with the artificial intelligence in these science fiction movies or, or books is that they're given too much control over every aspect of our lives. That Skynet was a global defense system. So if it goes crazy all of a sudden, or like Hal controlled the entire spaceship, if it goes crazy, you're just doomed. Which is true of any person, too. You don't want to have one guy in charge of the whole spaceship either. Yeah, so that's the warning that they're giving. It It seems... Appropriate. It seems perfectly sure. reasonable. I'm not, oh, I'm not, I don't have a problem with them not creating robot overlords. <laughs> yeah. Let's just make sure that's on recording right now in case of any future robot overlord situation. We're totally okay with the robot overlords. <laughs> just, <laughs> All hail robot overlords. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, so that mm-hmm. was a, a pretty cool list there, Mr. Ansel. Thank you for, for joining us with this. Thank you for having me. And, you know, Geek Top 5, as always, special thanks to Ben Sound, bensound.com, for providing our theme song. Uh, special thanks to Stella Simonova for providing our web presence. Um, and if you have anything you want to say about Hal, about Skynet, about anything else that's happening on Geek Top 5, feel free to reach out to us. Yeah, you can email the synopsis of Snow Crash to us at geektop5 at gmail.com. We can be reached at geektop5 on Twitter, and we can also be reached at facebook.com slash geektop5. Thanks for listening, and tune back in. We'll be back with you soon. 